and welcome to Thrift Shop Biography. This is the one about Grace Jones. Thank you for listening. Hello. Hello. What book have you been reading this week? Grace Beverly Jones. Oh, do you know what? That was immediate revelation to me. I'm still recovering from finding out that Debbie Harry is actually called Angela Trimble. And now to find out that Grace Jones is actually called Bev. (laughs) (laughs) It's such an unlikely name for her. It's so normal, Bev. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Bev. I love it. So I already know the answer to this question. But you're a huge fan of Grace Jones, right? I am. I think she's utterly amazing. I've seen her live twice and she's a performance artist. I love the disco. I love the fashion. She's one of those people who's art, it's fashion, it's music, it's performance, it's theatre, it's everything. The power of the woman. Yeah, she's an inspiration. I think she's amazing. What do you think of her? Oh, yeah. No, I've always loved her. Just this otherworldly quality that she has, you know, and I always felt the quality of her work was always a complete cut above most of the other people in the mainstream. I mean, I guess I'm drawn to the artistic side as much as you are. Mm, mm. Grace Jones has always stood out to me. I just love how not normal she is, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in love with the woman and I'm so grateful you found this book because now I love her even more. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I knew all about her work, didn't know about her life. I didn't know anything about her, actually. She's weirdly private, if you think about it. Yeah, she is, isn't she? I didn't know she had a son. I didn't know where she lived. I've never exactly known where she's from because she's got an accent from the whole world. And it all makes sense now, doesn't it? Yeah, she is the artist first, a a reluctant celebrity, really. And yeah, she doesn't give away anything she doesn't want to give away, which proves it can be done. That's true. Yeah, even when she does a chat show, she's always performing as Grace Jones. So she's never talking to you as herself, not really. Not as Bev. No, not as Bev. She never gives away her the other side of herself, the real side, yeah. which is great. We don't want that. We want Grace Jones, the artist. Mm-hmm. But in this book, we get her. We finally get to know her. So Grace Jones was born, Beverly Jones was born in... Actually, do you know what? She does make a really interesting point about age. And about how nobody really quite knows how old she is. And I don't think she quite knows herself. Yeah. Because when she became a younger teenager and she wanted to get work, she would make herself older to get the documentation so she could work. And so it's kind of been lost to time a bit, her actual age, although I'm sure she does know. I wondered if it was just that thing where an older lady is just a bit reticent to reveal her age. And it's a... Yeah. Look, she's got a passport, right? (laughs) She knows her age. But I like the concept that she's timeless. You know, you don't have to count the numbers all the time. No, you don't. And I I love the things that she says about age. And I think as you get older yourself, it just makes so much more sense that it is in many cases just an arbitrary number that you're assigned. It's crazy to judge people on their age. True. But she was born in 1948. (laughs) (laughs) I googled it. I don't care what she says. Yeah, well, it's not in the book. So, okay. I know. I had to know. In Jamaica. Jamaica. In Spanish town. She really describes it's this place with sort of Spanish buildings and then Georgian British buildings. It all mixes with whatever Jamaica is as well and becomes its own place. It fits in a way that she's got this international vibe because the place she's from is very international. So she's got this whole world 
outlook, which makes her different when she moves to America than an American. Mm -hmm. She's got this whole different notion. It's interesting, isn't it? It's really interesting, this stuff. Yeah. And her um, very religious family. Very religious. Her mother's family are the domineering Pentecostals. Uh Her dad's family are politicians and administrators. And her dad's dad went to fight for the British in the Second World War and in return was given some land up this hill, which is 10 miles outside of Spanish town. So interesting. Spanish town is actually only 14 miles from Kingston. That's the capital of Jamaica now. But Spanish town was the capital when it was Spanish. She says nowadays it's got so populated that the two were kind of merging together. But then it was a real journey to Kingston as a completely separate place. This is the first book I've read so far where I really felt transported. So I really felt like I was in Jamaica reading her descriptions of Jamaica. You're right. I've imagined uh, Jamaica like in a way I've never actually got to grips with it before. Her family are credited with being the first to bring books into Jamaica and they established the first library. Yeah. That's quite incredible, really. It kind of shows how forward thinking and how aspirational they were at the time. So they are heavily ensconced in religion and the church, but also in education as well. Yeah, they're not nobodies, are they? They are people, they are important people of the community. Yeah, and in fact, Grace Jones's granddad, her maternal granddad, was actually a musician. And he played on some Calypso albums and stuff, but he would go off traveling and he was kind of banished by the family in the end because they were so religious and that was kind of like against everything they believed. So when he was away, they didn't let him come back. And Grace's grandmother married somebody else 20 years younger, but actually they erased the memory of her granddad. And Grace only found out much later that she had this wayward spirit, a musician, as a actual maternal granddad. And she said she feels like his spirit has kind of embodied himself in her in some way. That's amazing, isn't it? I did look him up. He toured to the US loads. He played with Nat King Cole. And he's died at 47. Yeah. Banished man. Yeah. So she has six brothers and sisters all of a similar age, right? And her mum and dad are relatively young. Yeah. But hey, they stayed together their whole lives. Yeah, they did. But she were happily married. Yeah, they were happily married because they moved to America and left their six kids behind. <laughs> yeah, that's how you do it. <laughs> yeah, so Grace and her brothers and sisters were left with her grandmother and the husband, who was 20 years younger, who actually didn't want children. And he was very religious, very strict. So they were brought up from a very young age by this absolute terror of a man. Monster. Sadist, she calls him. Yeah. Mass P. Master P. Master for master. Yeah, so that's a hangover from slavery, isn't it? Yeah. And they would call him Mass P, and he terrified them. It all seemed so brutal and unnecessary. I mean, he used to beat them with switches and leather belts. He did that awful thing that Michael Jackson's dad did, where if he was going to beat them with a switch from the tree, he would make them climb up the tree and choose their own switch. And also, Grace said that her brothers would get beaten more, but he would make the girls sit in the room watching their brothers get beaten, which she said, of course, was just as bad because she felt so awful about it. But he was a real terror, and that stayed with them and her a lot long, long time. Well, her whole life. And he had belts with all their names on. Oh, yeah. belts. I mean, this is daily. They all got beaten every single day. Her parents basically left them to be tortured for years. 
Yeah, the parents didn't know that was going to happen or was happening. They didn't know. They never told them because they were imprisoned because their all their letters back and forth were being monitored by him. So they could never tell their parents. Grace says she doesn't resent her parents in any way. And actually, Grace didn't know that it wasn't normal because she was so young when the beating started. She kind of just assumed that this happened to all children, which it might have done in the church, let's face it. It might have. So her parents went to America to try to settle and establish themselves before sending for the kids. But unfortunately, this took years. But her mum really loved American life. And when she came back to visit, she was always doled up, had the fashion, had the hair, which was against the church. So she was the first one to rebel in a way, even though it was kind of subtle. Yeah. Grace would have seen a a taste from the outside world of her lovely straight hair and her fingernails and looking a bit like Diana Ross or Jackie O. Yeah. And then Grace, as Grace was getting older, she had an aunt, Sybil, who lived in Kingston. And she would be able to go and stay with her and Aunt Sybil would straighten her hair and she'd take her to the cinema. So she was getting a little glimpse of life outside the strict parameters of home and the church and school because she said the school they went to was actually in the church. So as they were growing up, like the first 10 years of her life, she rarely saw outside the boundaries of church life. And she said it was very militaristic, very strict And they were basically, even when they weren't at church or at school, they were reading the Bible. Yeah. And they didn't even have a TV. They didn't even have a radio. She heard no music. Wow. Apart from church music. That's it. She was Mm -hmm. so secluded. Years later, she goes back to Jamaica and her Aunt Sybil says, you don't know this country. She felt scared of the country every time she went back. Mm Mm-hmm. Because she'd only known home to church and home to church. And her aunt said, you need to explore Jamaica. Here's a map get her on a road trip, she had a boyfriend, and she went and discovered Jamaica for the first time and actually found this amazing country, which she just didn't know. So she she often says, in terms of her age, she feels like she was born when she moved to America because she was in prison up to that point. Well, she says when she leaves for America, because in the book you get a whole chapter of her revisiting Jamaica and she's in love with it and she talks about it so poetically and beautifully it makes you feel like you're there it makes you feel like you want to go and then in the book when you hear about her childhood she says when she gets on the boat to america she says she felt no emotion leaving jamaica because it didn't even feel like home and i thought oh wow but she talks about it so hard oh she rediscovered it later as an adult Mm. yeah really interesting so it's still her homeland but as a child she had such a horrible experience But it's still there in her blood, in her birthplace. And she finds it again later. Yeah, Yeah, I loved that. Everything was really dark and really scary for her. And then leaving for America, she was 13. Yeah. She goes to the land of the free. Imagine how nuts that would have been to her to just go to shopping malls and just have this completely and utterly different time. And her parents being so nice and no one whipping them anymore. Yeah. They were still religious. Her dad, at this point, had founded the Apostolic Church of Jesus Christ in Syracuse, which is upstate New York. So there was still an element of decorum. They still had to behave a certain way. It wasn't so strict and they weren't getting beaten. But she was still the daughter of a pastor, so she had to behave a certain way. But she rebelled against that because, of course, all of a sudden she's in America and she's got music and she's got makeup and she's got 
alcohol and boys. And she kind of, at this young age, was testing her parents in a way. I agree. She never says that she felt rejected. But I think if you're just left with your grandparents for 10 years, you don't have a nice time. I can imagine her actually finally getting to be with her parents and breaking free and wanting to rebel, actually. Maybe even taking a bit of that out on them. And then it also emerged that her brother Chris was gay. Yes. So they started hitting the gay bars and that's where she really found her people and her music mm-hmm. and dressing up and playing up and dancing. Dancing on tables started and never stopped by all accounts. She's a dancer on tables. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting about the gay connection and her brother being gay is that Grace was never going to have a conventional life because she talks about being more masculine than the average woman. And she is. I mean, you only have to picture her. She's tall. She's athletic. She keeps her hair very short. Mm. So she knew there was a mixture of man and woman, masculine and feminine within her, which she'd recognised in her brother. So I think it was just a natural conclusion that at some point she was going to find the gay scene and thrive on it. Yeah, she says that she developed her masculine side to protect her feminine side. Right, wow. Which is really cool, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's like we keep talking about it, but we may have to stop thinking there's a masculine and a feminine side and just accept that it's all one big mishmash of... I think we can keep masculine and feminine. I think we just need to change society's restrictions on men should just be masculine and women should just be feminine. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. And that's why people like Grace Jones are very, very important. It's really, really true. Mind you, it's not like she's saying, this isn't weird. (laughs) She's making it. (laughs) But hey, she's out there being amazing, so... Yeah. It's a good example. Yeah, so in this time, she bought makeup. She grew an afro, which was completely before everybody started doing that. She loved the Supremes and bought fabric and made her own clothes. And she also says there was a civil rights movement and she was sort of expected as a black woman to be part of it, but she didn't feel part of it. She didn't feel put down. She didn't feel belittled. She hadn't experienced racism, of course, because being from Jamaica, but she felt very empowered because her family were important. She said it took her years to feel racial indifference. She was like, couldn't even understand that people thought of her colour. She never thought of a bit of it before. Yeah, that's interesting. It reminds me of Nina Simone, actually, who grew up in a remote black community. So because within that community, like Grace in Jamaica, well, the black people are the doctors and the lawyers and the teachers, so there is no segregation. So when you get to America... She hasn't experienced the same divide that black Americans have where they've grown up alongside white people and they've been second class citizens. So Grace is arriving not having any racial indifference to the point where she doesn't even notice it to begin with. Yeah, I think it's important because her power must come from that partly. But realising that there is a movement happening in America And so when she decides to put her hair in an afro, which she said that when she turned up to school with an afro, and it's only a short one, it's not like a massive 1970s disco one. It's just a short, small afro. She said when she turned up to school with it, she said the teachers looked at her as if she'd fallen into prostitution. So that's how daring it was actually to have an afro in the 1960s. But she said after she'd done it, she noticed three of the older girls started coming to school with an afro. So it's amazing. Grace is younger within that school, but already she she's a trendsetter. Leader. 
Yeah, she is. Yeah. She says the civil rights in America are 100 years behind Jamaica. Well, that's because there's white people there. Yeah, that's true. It's white people. White people are the problem. Anyway, at school, she has a teacher called Tom Figgenshaw. Figgenshaw? Figgenshaw. Just call him Tom. She has a teacher called Tom, and he's a hippie theatre teacher with long hair, and he sounds like he really stood out. First of all, she has a crush on him. Every single man who seems important and has stuff she wants to learn, she always gets a crush on. Yeah. And then they end up becoming friends and she sucks all the information out of them. She can. She really sponges from interesting men. She finds the best men. She's got an amazing collection. When you look back on her life of amazing friends who are really at the top of their game. Yeah, ahead on the creative curve. Yeah, she is drawn to these people. And this man, everybody helps her up, but this man was the first and said to her, you're really good at acting, and took her to um, Philadelphia to do summer stock. Summer stock. She was actually properly acting. And eventually when she made a move on him, she realised he was gay. Yeah. This is definitely the beginning of a pattern. It's a running theme. Yes. So she stays in Philadelphia after Summerstock and she gets involved with the hippie communes. Yeah, she was like, right, I'm out of from my family. I am not going back. This is it. She's on her way. It's the mid-60s. She's about 15, 16. And the whole environment of a hippie commune really speaks to her because it's very free and easy. People are very laid back. I think she had such a militaristic upbringing. Then the few years with her parents in New York, which were a bit more relaxed... And then, you know, when she's old enough to leave them, she just chills out in a hippie commune for a while. Oh, my God. She literally goes wild. She gets a job as a go-go dancer. She's living with her boyfriend. She gets modelling work and she does naked photo shoots. She actually says repeatedly she's a nudist. She actually just often takes her clothes off because she doesn't like having clothes on. That's part of her rebelling. She's literally just ripping her clothes off, ripping all the inhibitions off. There are a few parallels with Debbie Harry here, and one of them is the Playboy Bunny. Playboy Bunny. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea. Well, I had no idea that Debbie Harry was a Playboy Bunny. I certainly didn't know that Grace Jones was. Yeah, because it feels a bit restrictive and conformist for Grace Jones, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, actually. But it was just a good way of making money. And she develops a bit of an act. She wears tiger skin, and she gets a whip, and she cracks it really hard. Right from even those early days, she channels Mass P. She finds a character and that character is Mass P and his evil power. And she finds that she can empower herself by channeling him. And she becomes a massive hit around town for her whip-cracking ways. <laughs> you know, I can see it. When you picture Grace Jones and that wide-eyed stare she has, she said that straight from Maz P. He had this terrifying stare, and she has taken that on and used it. So in a way, she's kind of turned it into a positive, used it to her advantage. But yeah. I can see how terrifying she is. So he must have been a hundred times more terrifying. Yeah, because he was going to whip you after that step. Mind you, probably so was Grace. (laughs) (laughs) So she was getting around Philadelphia and she was building up a modelling portfolio. And then there was a guy who was affiliated to Hugh Hefner called Harry Katz and he was going to open a club. He really loved Grace. He had like 1,500 girls who all sent in their 
photos to be dance go-go dancers in the club and he picked grace out and before the club had even opened that he hired her as an assistant and then she just kind of basically he was married but she basically became a decoration and every time he went out somewhere she would be on his arm and she said there was nothing sexual about it whatsoever he never made a pass he was a happily married man but he just enjoyed having this really striking woman on his arm so that was one of her jobs in philadelphia being a decoration yeah oh yeah okay then she had this really bad audition with gamble and huff yeah gamble and huff being utter legendary record producers it's a philly sound isn't it it's a philadelphia international label she didn't realize that though Tom had heard her sing, kept saying to her, you've got a good voice. So he arranged this singing audition for her. She wasn't really looking for that. She didn't know what to expect. And she certainly didn't know who Gamble and Huff were. I mean, they'd worked with Aretha Franklin and they were at this time making an album with Dusty Springfield. And Grace Jones didn't know. And she went in and she said it was in a room with the producers, with the musicians and she was asked to sing a song and she just completely went to pieces. And she comes back to that moment the rest of her life. She goes, oh, it was a bit of a gamble and huff moment. I was really terrified it might be like that gamble and huff. It's like the most humiliating thing she's ever done. But you almost need one. So she's determined to never, ever mess it up ever again. It was a turning point. She pulls herself together after that. Yeah, and also I think she hadn't found her voice yet, as in her singing voice, because it is unusual. It's certainly unusual for a woman. It's very low. And I think she hadn't become confident in it at all. So when she was just thrust into this room and asked to sing... She was just unsure of it. She hadn't mastered her instrument. It was almost, thinking about it, it was almost unfair of Tom to put her in that position. Yeah, she should have had singing lessons first and then gone to see Campbell and Hoff. Yeah. Or done a few gigs around town or anything. She'd done nothing. She'd never used her voice. Yeah. Yeah, it did take her years to find it. In fact, literally right at the end of the book when she talks about doing a duet with Pavarotti, I think that's the moment where she actually goes, I am a singer. I actually feel like now I can say I am a singer. And that was in about 94. She's never been sure. I had to look that up on YouTube and it is phenomenal. It's amazing. Yeah, what kind of makes that an amazing moment is when she walks out with Pavarotti, the audience are laughing because she's got this amazing hat on. I guess they think she's going to be some kind of novelty clown act or something. And then they do this aria... And she complete, oh God, she sounds amazing. Oh, and there's that bit where Pavarotti asks to sing with her and she keeps suggesting songs and he refuses every single one. And then somebody says, you should try this one. Sorry, I've completely forgotten what it is, but you need to do this duet with him. And he agreed. And when she went to rehearsal and she started singing, Pavarotti stopped and he got Grace to stop singing. And she's like, oh, no, I can't sing. This is like a gamble and huff moment all over again. But it wasn't until later Pavarotti's sister was sat in the audience and she watched that rehearsal. And she said to Grace, oh, my God, you sound just like our dad. 
and Pavarotti had stopped because he got emotional. Their dad had only just died. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah. And actually watching that performance, you can hear it. It's actually quite similar to Pavarotti, the way she sings. So that's how far she came with her voice. Gosh, amazing. But do you remember the bit before she went to do that duet with him? She had her boyfriend with her. Yeah. And they went into the green room and she said the green room was this tent and it just opened up onto the starry sky. And she said all the opera singers were in there doing their vocal warm-ups. And so she was hanging out in this green room. And she had this great big skirt on. And she said that her boyfriend went under her <laughs> skirt and um, attended to her. What's a nice way of saying it? And she said she got so carried away. And he was giving her an intense orgasm that she was just hooting and hollering. But because all the opera singers were doing their vocal warm-ups, <laughs> nobody knew what was going on. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. So now when you watch her with Pavarotti, you know what's just happened. <laughs> <laughs> That's Grace Jones's whole life, by all accounts. Yeah. It really is. She's a free spirit. Yeah, to be so dominated and then to be so liberated for the rest of her life that was the cause and effect <laughs> so she's in philly she's getting around in the art scene she's getting pictures taken but she realizes that to move on she needs to go back to new york city yeah and then she just gets on the circuit of modeling auditions and film auditions but she has this friend called Marsha McBroom, who has an afro, as Grace does. But the thing is, is Grace's speaking voice lets her down because all of the roles are for these black women with American black accents. And Grace doesn't have that. So she's not getting cast. And Marsha McBroom is taking all of the jobs. So she ends up at Wilhelmina Models, who we've met before in yes, Janice Dickinson's autobiography. First of all, she went to Eileen Ford. And of course, Eileen Ford Model Agency is more about the mainstream look. Very blonde, blue-eyed American girls and Grace is anything but. And somebody said, go to Wilhelmina because she likes the people who look different. Wilhelmina actually didn't really like Grace that much but took her on. And then Grace pushed her look and that's where she first started getting a buzz cut and I think she shaved her eyebrows off and Wilhelmina was really really angry so Wilhelmina started putting her in wigs to go to castings and stuff which Grace hated so she was in New York doing the rounds going up for modeling jobs going up for acting jobs one of the first acting jobs she went up for was for a one-line part in this black exploitation thriller and it's her first experience with the casting couch she said the director took one look at her gave her the job straight away but then the producer called her up and said, oh, it's not yours yet. Come to my house and, you know, let's see how we get on. So, of course, she goes to his house. He answers the door in his dressing gown, gives her a glass of champagne. She's kind of new to that in a way. So she feels like she has to play the game. And then it becomes very clear. He's patting the couch next to him and he says, come and sit next to me. And he goes to kiss her and she throws the champagne in his face, stormed out crying thinking that she's absolutely stuffed her acting career before it starts and then the next day there's a bunch of flowers for her the producer says i'm really sorry you've got the role i mean i know he was trying to shag her but her reaction i mean if you've got a small role in a black exploitation thriller to throw yeah. a glass of champagne she does that a lot and shout at the producers but you're perfect for the role <laughs> yes exactly 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, she nearly got the job of the Acid Queen. She was second choice. Yeah. Tatina Turner. Wow. Bloody hell. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? But that doesn't even make sense because she wasn't even anyone then. And Tina Turner was Tina Turner. Tina Turner was Tina Turner. But Grace Jones, she didn't have the fame or the profile at that point, but she was still an undeniable striking force of nature. Yeah, she'd have been amazing in that part. She would have been a brilliant acid queen. Yeah, she would. It's weird. So she would have made it one way or another. Yeah. So then in New York, one of her best friends was this model called Paula. Paula. And she was successful, but she had a few problems. But she was Grace Jones's best friend, and Paula was getting front cover of magazines and stuff and they'd go out clubbing and doing drugs together but then sadly Paula took her own life and Grace saw that and saw how New York and the modeling scene was chewing people up and spitting them out and that made her think I need to kind of get out of here before this happens to me Mm -hmm. and then she makes it all the way to Paris not least because Wilhelmina is not getting any work for her so Wilhelmina this model agency who specializes in women who look a bit different the the jobs just weren't happening and somebody said to her go to paris we hear this so much in these books yes go to paris get famous in paris and then come back and everybody will want you so off she went to paris yes that's totally right and she gets into this whole clubbing scene of paris it's it's studio 54 before studio 54 she says le jardin it's le jardin yeah disco like really the birth of disco was happening here first but uh yeah she did acid for two weeks and then got a budget flight to paris so by the time she got there she was a bit wired and i think she said it was three days she was there and she wasn't getting any work. So she went in and completely yelled at the bloke. She's probably still a bit wired. <laughs> oh, well, this is um, this is Johnny Casablanca. Yes. Who runs Elite Models. She was only there three days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she was bang on the target, though. But she was right. He wasn't sending her out for jobs. Yeah. Well, he said to her, he said, selling a black model in Paris is like selling a secondhand car nobody wants to buy. Yeah. And she exploded at him. And she just said, I hope you die of cirrhosis of the liver. Because he was Which a heavy... Which he eventually did, he apparently. Did, yeah. yeah. But she also yelled at him, I'm going to make you eat your words. And she did. She did. So it's one of those where it actually gave her the last boost she needed, a massive incentive to make it. But she had upset him so much that actually he started putting obstacles in her way. But she said, in a way, he was kind of right. Black models weren't being employed in Paris. And she said, even in America, there was a black model called Beverly Johnson who was getting the front covers and stuff. And she was like, all the jobs, all the jobs who required black models would just hire Beverly Johnson. So the odds were really stacked against Grace for her modelling career. Anyway, there was a smaller agency which had just started up in Paris called Euro Planning. Yes. And she was hired by them. They only had three girls at the beginning, and that was Grace Jones, Jerry Hall, and Jessica Lang. Amazing. Amazing. What a lineup. Yeah. Three legends to be. Absolutely. I mean, whoever started that agency really had a good eye. Right? Yes, exactly. Oh, my God. The people she meets early on they become her friends for life those women become her friends for life with this new agency grace starts getting proper work as a black woman in paris and she gets a spread in depeche mode magazine but johnny casablanca's 
they're shooting in one of his studios and he says, no, I'm not having her working in one of my studios. This is how petty this man is. But then she meets a photographer called Helmut. Helmut Newton, who Johnny Casablancas has no influence over whatsoever. And he loves Grace and he starts using her. So the hold that Johnny Casablancas has over Grace is now lifted thanks to Helmut Newton. And he becomes a friend for life. And then she meets Issei Mayaki, who is a Japanese legendary fashion designer. If you look at any of the style of Grace, it's the layers, the shoulders, the wrap around the head things, like the giant hoods, that's all him. He really created her. Also, his influence, he took her on and built a whole show around her. As she was starting out singing, mm. he changed her life, but it worked both ways because she is a walking Issei Mayake model all of the rest of her life. I'm just going to add this in as well whilst we're talking about her style. Philip Tracy. I went to him doing a talk on his hats because I knew he designed all of Grace Jones's hats. That's why I went. Lovely, lovely man. This helps me get to know that she must be a lovely person because that's one of her best friends. And she meets him because she was doing the performance for the Queen and she needed a hat. And she knew that if she got this ship, it was really to do with the history of Jamaicans coming over to Britain in the Windrush. She walked in the shop and she saw this ship and they wouldn't let her take it because it was display only. And so they shut the shop because Philip Tracy wasn't there and they went with her and accompanied the hat. And that was the beginning of their relationship. He's her best friend. The last time I saw her... It was at Brighton Pride, and she kept saying, is Philip Tracy here? I think he's supposed to be here somewhere. He literally is that much of a mate who come to Brighton to see her at Pride. They're best mates. He's a really amazing man, amazing artist, just a lovely man. It's interesting how she got her record deal, actually, because after that false start with Gamble and Huff, it really knocked her confidence as far as singing went. And so she was modelling for this little agency. And they had a couple of other models, one of which was called Este, and they all lived in rooms next to each other. And because they would go out clubbing every night in Paris, when Grace was getting ready, she would sing. All their rooms were above this courtyard, and her voice would go out and boom around the courtyard. And Este, one of the other models said, oh my God, you're an amazing singer. Her boyfriend at that time was a talent scout for a record company. So she went along and auditioned for them and they liked her, but they told her to get singing lessons, which kind of basically she didn't want to do. But she went and she said she found them so boring, she stopped going. And so the record company lost interest in her. But that doesn't bother Grace because she's going to be a singer now anyway. She's absolutely determined to become a singer. And before long, she's back in New York and she's working at Sigma Sound with Tom... Moulton, who is a disco legend. Did you know about him? Yes, I did, because I've read a Bible of disco once. It's big as a brick. My head's full of disco information. He developed the 12-inch dance breaks. He's the man who developed the 12-inch altogether. He's amazing. And he produced her first album. So, boom, that's <laughs> that's it. You've got the man. He based it on soul and funk and gospel roots. She didn't write any of her own singles on the first one. Well, you know, the thing about this early disco stuff is it was producers like Tom Moulton and they would often produce the tracks and stuff without even having a singer in mind at that point. So he, yeah. he was discoing up a lot of Broadway tunes. 
But anyway, he was working on Le'Veon Rose without even thinking of Grace Jones. And then their paths crossed at the right time. And then he thought, oh, wow, she'd be really good singing on this. But she said at that point, you know, he would just see the voice as just another instrument. So she'd go and lay her vocals down. She wasn't getting a lot of input at that moment because Tom Moulton was masterminding everything. She brought out three disco albums very close to each other, right? There was mm. about three albums in two years or something. Yeah. And she was getting big in the clubs. Yeah, and she was doing things like she sang La Fayon Rose at the Met Gala dressed as a chandelier. <laughs> so it's it's mixing fashion, performance, music. Yeah. It's, it's not just a disco song. It's the means to have a show. Mm-hmm. And then she sings I Need a Man at a gay club. Ah, oh, that's when John... Claude Goud saw her and became really obsessed with her. And he's an illustrator. Jean-Paul Goud was actually going out with her best friend at the time, Tukey Smith. So because her music was hitting big in the clubs, she decided to leave Paris quite quickly to capitalise on that success in New York. But because she was a successful model in Paris at this point, and she was upsetting people because she had bookings, her friend Tukey Smith, who was another black model, Grace Jones said, give Tukey all of my jobs. Tukey's boyfriend was Jean-Paul Goud, who was the artistic director of Esquire magazine. And they became interested in each other quite quickly. (laughs) So she leaves Paris and she's in New York. This is about 1977. And she's getting very immersed in the New York club scene and performing, doing her um, making appearances and singing her successful disco hits. And it's that exact time, 1977, it's like the best year of disco. It's when Studio 54 got invented, which, oh, she was mates with the woman, I can't remember her name, but the woman who was the events manager of the whole thing. So she actually went to Studio 54 before they turned it into what it was, when it was just an abandoned theatre in the the kitchen, what's it called, Hell's Kitchen. So she was right in at the start of it. And that events manager woman, because she's the one who put on all these themed parties People often, they always talk about Bianca Jagger coming in naked on a horse. But actually, Dolly Parton right, had the best little whorehouse in Texas opening party was at Studio 54. And they this woman put bales of hay everywhere and actual pigs. It was like a whole country thing. No one ever talks about that. I don't remember how I know that. It's so impossible to underestimate how amazing that place was. It was a total fancy escapist, theatrical amazing leave the real world and it went on right through the night and into the next day somebody like myself who doesn't know too much about studio 54 i know the most famous thing about studio 54 is when nar rogers was refused entry yeah but here's the thing what i didn't know grace jones is taking credit for that because she says it was new year's eve on 1977 where she was doing a performance there and she'd invited Niall Rogers, but because the whole world and its wife had descended on it that night, because it was a New Year's Eve party, they couldn't get in. They were turned away. <laughs> so is that true, that it was Grace Jones that caused all of that to happen? Yes, I've heard Niall Rogers tell the story himself in an oh, interview. Niall Rogers told yeah. it. Yeah. She'd invited them. Okay. It was New Year's Eve, so you couldn't get in anywhere else because everything's got to be booked. And she'd forgotten to put them on the guest list. <laughs> oh, or had no. she? Or did they just not let them in? And they, it was snowing... They were in their best clothes there. Yeah, they went back to Bernard Edwards' apartment and wrote, ah, fuck off. Ah, fuck off. Oh, this is quite catchy. 
turned it into freak out and the rest is history. So yeah, she she is responsible partly for that happening. Wow. It's pretty And nice. I know that that song to this day is the biggest selling disco hit worldwide of all time. That's amazing. That was born out of the fact that they couldn't get into Studio 54. Yeah, yeah. To That's see amazing. Grace Jones. <laughs> it's nuts, isn't it? And we have Grace no. Jones to thank for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So at this time where she's releasing her disco album, she's actually managed by a nice couple called Cy and Eileen. They're looking after her disco career, but they kind of have aspirations for Grace to be the next Gloria Gaynor or Donna Summer, which really is never going to happen. But they're kind of trying to steer her in that direction. Whereas Grace, even though disco hasn't quite hit its mainstream peak yet, Grace already knows that it's kind of going in a certain direction that she wants to go slightly off beat from. So Cy and Eileen are kind of getting her to work with producers, but Grace is kind of feeling that she wants to move on in another direction. Cy and Eileen have their own small record label, but at this point they sign a licensing deal with Island Records, who are a much bigger outfit and have Bob Marley and other acts and becoming very successful. And it's at this point where Cy and Eileen are trying to groom Grace into being a nice evening dress. I mean, the videos of her singing Levion Rose on TV, other than her shaved head. I mean, she looks like Diana Ross or Donna Summer with a shaved head because she has a nice glittery evening dress on. It's all nice. But then Grace gets an interview in a magazine and she works with Jean-Paul on it. And it's the first time that they collaborate artistically and he takes these amazing photographs of her. Somebody comes to interview her and she's just a bit outrageous and she's farting and she's drinking bottle from the wine. And bottle when from the interview, wine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she's farting and drinking wine from the bottle. And when the interview is published, Cy and Eileen hit the roof because it's so different from the image that they're trying to cultivate for her. They are so mad that they then actually sell her contract to Island Records. Yeah, also, they snaked in Jean-Paul's naked photo of her, the one where she's really statuesque. I think it's the one they used on the cover of Island Life, where she's standing with one foot as if she's a statue on a platform. Iconic. With a leg in the air and a microphone. Oh, his images of her. I mean, they helped shape the 80s just in terms of graphic design. They're absolutely superb. There'd be no Max Wall. It's all of that. It's... Cutting her up, they collaging her. It's making her into a work of art just as an illustration. You said Max Wall. Yeah. Max Wall's that strange creation that was... Do you remember him? He had blonde hair, but he was exactly the same as Grace Jones. And his mouth moved like that. Do you mean Max Headroom? I mean Max Headroom. I don't mean Max Wall. He was a bloody vaudeville performer. Oh, my days. God. I do not mean Max Wall. Max Headroom, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Island Records is run by this guy called Chris Blackwell, a white guy who actually grew up in Jamaica. Because to begin with, when he had Grace Jones under Cy and Eileen, he just kind of wasn't too bothered about her because it was disco. He wasn't too interested. He just let them take care of it. When Cy and Eileen signed her over to Ireland and people said to Chris Blackwell, no, this woman's amazing. She's from Jamaica. She's so different. You need to meet her. And he did. And so he could see straight away that she wanted to be and do something different. So he really started finding the right team of people 
around Grace. So she would be more than disco and she would be her own thing. And he actually got a band called Black Uhuru, who I didn't know Sly and Robbie started in Black Uhuru. I was aware of both of them, didn't know one came from the other. I didn't know Sly and Robbie were involved with Grace Jones either. That was a revelation. And Wally Badaru as well. They started a band called the Compass Point All Stars. And they brought in a guy from Tyrone who was part yeah. of the Whalers, Bob Marley and the Whalers. Well, I was going to say, Chris, when he formed Island Records, he's the man who was responsible for bringing Bob Marley out of Jamaica and making him known to the world. Mm-hmm. Plus, his first hit single was My Boy Lollipop. That makes him a legend. Yeah, real legend. Right there. I mean, literally, a total legend, yeah. So that's good background info. Carry on. The thing about the Compass Point All-Stars was is that Wally Badaru has spent a lot of time in Paris. Sly and Robbie, Black Uhuru, obviously, and with Tyrone coming from Jamaica, they actually had built a band with elements of all of Grace's previous lives. Because we had Jamaica, we had Paris, New York, and also some African influence in there as well. So already we're starting to get this unique sound which reflects Grace's personality and her lived experience. And coupling that with Jean-Paul's artwork, I mean, she's really becoming this amazing individual artistic force that we know her for. Yes, rather than just dropping your voice in on a disco track, she's starting to actually bring her personality into her music. Yes, and her history mm-hmm. and her cultures. So they were recording an album in the Bahamas in Nassau and Grace is pregnant at this point and she was just about to go out to start the recording sessions when her and Jean-Paul got held up in their apartment by a man with a gun who terrorised them, basically. And because of that, she went to the doctor and the doctor said, the hold-up has accelerated your pregnancy so you can't fly to Nassau to record the album. But the band were already there and they'd not worked together before, some of them. And Chris Blackwell says that actually it was a terrible month because they weren't getting on, they were too conflicted, they had too many different styles. But he said because they were there, they worked together and then they just started cultivating this amazing sound with all these different influences, very laid-back, original grooves I think that might not have happened if Grace had gone over straight away. Yeah. But because she was delayed in New York, they all had time to to work with each other and figure stuff out. Yeah, so by the time they got there, it just slid out of them all. Yes. And these are songs like Warm Leatherette. Yes. And, which, oh, oh, I love it. And Nightclubbing. Uh, there's a quite a few covers. Private Life. My Jamaican Guy. Pull Up to the Bumper. Uh, yeah, amazing songs. Oh, it's just iconic music and very different you know pull up to the, i remember the first time i heard pull up to the bumper as a young child in the air it was very different to anything else that was out at yeah. that time like yeah. truly original yeah. and she certainly was i yeah, remember was. seeing her she certainly was very different she was do you know i remember when you and i lived together you played that album to death i really did you got me into it actually because i was only aware of her in the 80s with a couple of the tunes that hit the mainstream and then because you used to play that album so much i really got into it oh uh, yeah it's great So her albums are selling. They're getting into the mainstream charts now. She's a known face in the fashion magazines. She's really beginning to cross over in a way somebody as individual as her can. She's never going to be completely mainstream, but she is well known in music, in fashion, in in film. She's beginning. Oh, she was considered for the 
a part in Blade Runner. Yeah. But Jean-Paul, because Jean-Paul, he was very possessive of her because he was her collaborator, that he didn't want her to work with anybody well, else. Yeah, he says as well, she says at the time, it was this really big thing that you couldn't sell out. If you were sort of cool and underground, everything commercial or successful was considered selling out. But she says if she'd have only just read it, she'd have realised it was really not selling out. Yeah. Wasn't Blondie offered Blade Runner as well? Yeah, she was, but it was different parts, actually. Right, but her record company made her turn it down. Yeah. It wasn't her. She would have said yes. But I would never have imagined that Blade Runner was ever thought to be this big mainstream sellout Yeah, that's movie. right. Well, like she says, as soon as she said no, she read the script and then said yes, what, 24 hours later and someone else had got the part. So that's how close she was to doing it. So people in the UK who don't know too much about her, she's probably remembered the most for being the person who beat up Russell Harty on his chat show. Yes. Which is an amazing pop culture moment. Actually. Isn't it amazing that she gives it so much time in this book? Cause... I relished every single word. I loved reading about this. <laughs> I loved it. And I'm so pleased she gave it so much yes, time in the book. Me too, because you'd have thought it meant nothing to her. But because we don't understand how sensitive she actually is and we don't understand her history and how much being dismissed and being belittled, you know, it, how much it actually means to her never to be treated like that. Yeah. That actually wasn't so much of a performance. That was real. That was her actual personality going, how dare you be this rude to me? You can't turn your back on me. And it's actually brilliant. It's brilliant that that <laughs> happened. So anyway, to explain, Russell Harty was interviewing her and then Lord Litchfield, and he's friends with the Queen. He asked her a few questions and then turned his back on her. So she kept prodding him and poking him and then saying she's going to walk out, just behaving like a spoiled child, she says. But did she slap him in the end? Yeah, so he interviews her first because Lord Litchfield's obviously a photographer. Grace Jones is a model. So in the rehearsal, it was all set up with her saying what it's like being in front of the camera. And then they'll ask Lord Litchfield what it's like being behind the camera. She said the rehearsal all went fine, but in the live recording of the show, in front of a studio audience, she said that Russell Harty just asked her a couple of quick questions and then turned to Lord Litchfield and just started talking to him. She got very frustrated that she was being ignored. And she was embarrassed because there was a whole studio audience. This is live TV and she is being ignored. So she pokes him in the back and says, please don't ignore me. And he kind of says, OK, we'll get back to you in a minute. And then she slaps him and says, no, like, talk to me now. I'm here. This is so rude. And she just keeps slapping him. It's amazing. But um, that's become one of our British iconic TV chat show moments. Yeah, he was very beloved and the national treasure. But it actually put him on the map as well because it was front page news. Put them both on the map, actually. The sad thing about it is, she said, when she came off, when it was over, she sat in the green room and nobody would talk to her. She said it was completely deserted. She was left completely on her own. She went back to her hotel room and cried because she felt so humiliated. And of course, a record company were furious with her. But she said the papers the next day, well, some of them were saying, who is this crazy woman? But others were saying, good for her for sticking up for as a Russell Harty has had this coming to him. And all of a sudden, the world's media wanted to talk to her. Yeah, and there's no such thing as bad news yeah. because you've, you're in the news. Yep. But she ran away. Then they're like, why did you fly out of here? Get back there. Do the interviews. So I'm not selling out. Yeah. 
And she didn't go and do any interviews. She was worried that if she spoke to anybody afterwards, it might seem like a contrived trick to get publicity. In her record company, Chris Blackwell at Ireland, like, do these interviews. Let's make the most of this. It's great promotion. She's like, no. And she flew back to New York. She said that when Russell Harty died, that half an hour of TV, they're so inextricably linked that when Russell Harty died, every single newspaper got in touch with her for a quota. She's like, I didn't kill him. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I want to say this. The next thing that happens, I bet you this helped her get the part because she got cast as the villain in the Bond film. You see, <laughs> yes. it, it, it's all good. It's all good for her. And of course she took that. Yeah. She, and she, she's got a really lovely stories to tell about it, how lovely Roger Moore is for a start. And really how much she got into the part. Oh, my God. Everyone was offered the part of the man baddie. Christopher Walken took it. But Mick Jagger and David Bowie were offered it. Imagine David Bowie would have been amazing. But Christopher Walken's great. But I love that film and I love her in it. Yeah. And she says, I'm really pleased when people see it. It's not just Grace Jones. She really, really worked on the character. Because I think she's got a lot of empathy in that. She's the baddie. But right at the end, she blows herself up. She takes a hit to save. Spoiler alert. Oh, everyone see it for you to a kill. Surely. But, you know, she's got depth. There's depth to that character. I love her in that film. She's fantastic. Great Bond buddy. Totally embodies all of this work and makes it her own. Well, that's because she's a true artist. She's not just a singer. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's performance art. When you see her, you have to see her live. She's become, in the UK anyway, she's become the queen of the festivals. She headlines so many festivals every year for the last 10 years. She is anarchy. She is punk. She's got the spirit of punk. I saw her, she was like about 70, about five years ago or so. She was smoking a spliff at the end of her gig. And then she got on the shoulders of a security guard who looked like this had never happened before and just got carried around the crowd, through the crowd. It looked like she was completely naked except her body thing. She had all the paint all over her. didn't look like she was wearing any underwear and she was wrapped around this security bloke's neck. He was literally giving her a big... She went around the whole crowd just waving at her. Of course, everyone was on their phones annoyingly. So when she came past me, I was like, I'm not filming this. I want a connection. So I stuck both my thumbs up at her, which is so uncool. And she laughed at me. She laughed at me. I was like, I've been blessed by the Pope. I've been blessed. Disco has touched me. It's just not a normal performance of music. It's a whole experience. Well, you know that thing at the Diamond Jubilee? I had to re-watched it last night on YouTube because in my memory, it's just like, okay, she's 65 at this point and she comes out and she hula hoops for the entire song while singing thoughtlessly. And I thought, did I remember that properly? And I looked back at it on YouTube. And that's amazing that (laughs) at her age, the control she must have to hula hoop for an entire song whilst it uh, she's amazing. She is amazing. amazing. She put her first tour together in 1981. It was called One Man Show. And she was feeling really lonely because it's a lot of work and Jean-Paul was too busy working on the image of her instead of the real her. So she had an affair with the security guard. It was just a normal fellow who was at university, a student called Hans Lundgren, who later became Dolph Lundgren, the film star. I love this. So he's a security guard to make a bit of money to support his studies because he's at the University of Sydney studying chemical engineering. Yeah. Who would ever have thought that that man 
You wouldn't have guessed. No. Yeah. Wow. So I was fascinated by that. But she was really missing Jean Paul. And she was saying to him, come out and see me. I need you. She was feeling very vulnerable, very needy. And he kept saying, no, I'm staying here because I'm working on, you know, the other part of the business. She kind of said to him, she kind of almost warned him. She phoned him up again and said, if you don't come, I can't be held responsible for my actions. Anyway, one thing led to another. She started going out with this very handsome, tall security guard. And he was really sweet. And she ended up sleeping with him. And then she was very honest to Jean-Paul and Jean-Paul dumped her there and then. So she'd been in a long-term relationship with him. He was a father of her child. And that was that. And that really was that. They didn't get back together. So that she started a relationship with Dolph Lundgren. But she actually says he was really caring and he actually looked after her because at that point, because she was so unhappy, she was getting too high. And Dolph Lundgren was into sports and stuff. So he was like really taking care of her health and getting her off drugs and into sports more, which she remembered she really liked. And she actually credits and She says that he completely grounded her and she actually credits him with saving her life, which surprised me because reading the book, I didn't get that she was that far off the rails at any point. Mm. She always seemed to be in control. She hasn't lost control. <laughs> yeah. So... We're running out of time. I know. This book has so much in it. Again, you know, I don't think we say this every week, but you can listen to us for an hour, but you really need to read these books. And if you're going to read one of the books, this is one to read, right? Oh, there's so much. We haven't even said that she went to Arnold Schwarzenegger's wedding with Andy Warhol. It's just ridiculous. Oh, we haven't even talked about Trevor Horn. We haven't even talked about him. Uh, But yeah, Trevor Horn phones up because he's working on Slaves to the Rhythm. But at that time, her and Dolph were arguing a lot because he was starting his film career and it was getting a bit repetitive Trevor Horn phones up and they're right in the middle of an argument it says he called just when I was setting fire to Dolph's trousers (laughs) (laughs) there's a whole chapter near the end about all the people that have come after her she's saying it's easy for them because they didn't have to invent it but every single thing she did she was the first person doing it you know in everything we've just said basically she was pushing all the boundaries. Grace is so authentic because we haven't even talked about Keith Haring. Here's yes. another reason why you need to read this book. But you know that very famous picture where he's painting directly onto her body. Here's the difference between Grace Jones and the pretenders who come after her. For example, Rihanna has copied that look. Yeah. But Rihanna had it painted onto a bodysuit. Whereas Grace Jones has it painted onto her skin. That's kind of the difference between Grace Jones and the people who are influenced by her. Grace Jones is like the real deal, but the other people like wear it like a coat. Yeah. Also, she says there's every chance that Rihanna doesn't know where it's come from. Right. It might be her stylist that might know the yes. history, but she may well not. Yeah. Because she's been styled, whereas Grace was absolutely creating her own. She was choosing her collaborators herself. And do you know what? It shows, doesn't it? You can tell. Yeah. And the fact that she's mysteriously aged well over 70 and still queen of the festivals (laughs) is proof that it's worked. She's survived. She's conquered more than survived. She's dominated. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Thrift Shop Biography. We love making this podcast and we're absolutely thrilled that so many of you are already listening. You could really help us out by leaving us a review somewhere, wherever you listen to this podcast. And if you could share us, tell your friends about us or drop some links on social media. We have a Facebook page 
called Thrift Shop Biography. So make sure you come over there to hear about the episodes first and what else we're up to. Okay, see you next week. And if you're new here, there are loads more episodes now to go and listen in the back catalogue. So make sure you go and enjoy them. Okay, thank you very much.